The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are week after week yep. in our listeners' living rooms, iPods, iPhones, etc. Exactly. <laughs> uh, this is episode number 50. We are closing in on a year. So um, I can't believe how fast it's gone by. I know it's, and I think we've done really well. We're over 12,000 downloads and that's a good thing. That means we're reaching a lot of people. And so for those of you who are listening, thank you for listening. And before I forget, if you have a story that you would like to share with us, feel free to um, either call Jason at 877-339-3324 and he'll let me know and we'll get it set up. Or you can email me and my email is Joni, J-O-A-N-I-E, Mac, M-A-C, the numbers 69 at gmail.com. So you could email me and say, I've got a story and I'd like to talk to you about it. And then we'll see if we can get you on the podcast. So... That would be great if someone were to uh, call up with their story, because I think hearing from our viewers or our, our, our listeners, um, I think it'd be a really, really great thing, because here's the thing. In addiction, everybody has a story, even if it's not the addict themselves, That's but right. the families, That's the r- people connected to the addicts, everybody has a story to tell. That's right. I think one of the most powerful episodes we did was with your mom and dad. I really do, because they... Uh-huh they lived through it and they were able to share, you know, how they finally realized, you know, they they realized what they were doing wrong when they connected up with learn to cope. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think their story was extremely powerful and I'm fairly certain that it rings true with a lot of loved ones of addicts out there and what they go through. So anybody's got a story, feel free to call us. Jason, what's been happening at the center since we last spoke? Okay. Packed, packed, packed. It is so busy here. Um, hence why we're doing this remotely yet again. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, been, it's, it's been busy. You know, our capacity is, is about 32 and we're about 34 right now as far as people on the program. And um, it's really, really, really busy. You know, I like to think that doing this podcast and all the different ways we reach out and, you know, allow Narconon to be known about is causing, you know, a huge inflow of people. Also, it's an indication of where the epidemic is and it's not slow and it's not slowing down. And, you know, at times I feel like it's getting worse at times. I feel like it's getting better, but there's never a, um, a lack of people who are needing treatment. And luckily we get people that find us and we find them and we get to route them into the program and get them the help they need and, you know, get them off drugs for good. And, yeah. um, you know, the epidemic as it stands right now, it's, it's, it's bad out there. It's a scary time to use drugs. Yeah. Um, comparatively to when I use drugs, it's completely different these days. And, you know, I'm glad to be on the front lines of this thing, trying to help, you know, each person, you know, person by person, one at a time and get them through the program and get them back to the lives that they truly want for themselves. And, um, you know, until more people realize that the answer to this epidemic is not more drugs and it's not in, you know, psychiatric medications and it's not necessarily in 12-step programs, but it's in long-term comprehensive rehabilitation, I guess, to the core of the, of the person's addictions. It's the only way we're going to see the thing slow down. Exactly. And, you know, I think 
that you just hit the nail on the head, especially with the interview that we're going to play today. And that this fellow that that we're going to play the interview, he actually did a 12 step program. But the program that he went through had a major difference that he will talk about, wherein he realized what the problems were, for which Mm -hmm. drugs became the solution. And I think I think Sometimes that doesn't happen with 12-step programs, which is um, possibly why the success rate is not as high as with a program like Narcanon. But I think he tells right. a very good story as to, you know, kind of how it worked for him. And I think, I think it's very powerful. Um, should we go ahead and play the interview? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. So today's interview is with Craig DeRoche. Craig DeRoche is the Senior Vice President for Advocacy and Public Policy with Prison Fellowship. Craig joined Prison Fellowship several years ago as the Director of External Affairs for the organization's advocacy arm and just the advocacy arm Justin Justice Fellowship. And today he leads the Prison Fellowship's criminal justice reform efforts. We, I'm going to ask um, Craig to tell his own story, um, but he was first introduced to Prison Fellowship while speaking at a national forum on addiction in 2011. And he's got a fascinating story, and he's also got kind of a different perspective on addiction, if you will, because um, Prison Fellowship obviously works in and around the justice system. And so... Let's do our interview with Craig DeRoche. Well, thank you, Craig, for being on the podcast today. I already said before um, we started this, I told a little bit about your background. But the way I like to start these interviews is to have you tell me your story. I know that you had um, uh, your drug of choice, if you will, was alcohol. And tell me, how did you get started down that path? Well, for me, alcohol, it was really, uh, I guess some people would say love at first sight. It wasn't that I loved alcohol. It was that I knew I wanted more alcohol from the very first time uh, that I drank it. And uh, how I drank alcohol was uh, just taking it from my parents and, and probably at such a young age where I probably wouldn't have even gotten in too much trouble if I got caught. Um, they would have assumed that I was just being mischievous because I think I was probably 10 or 11 years old. Um, at the latest, I would have been 11. And uh, um, I started uh, drinking more and more of it. And, and actually the the friends and, and uh, others that I ran with, it made sense to us as we talked about this, that, that we kept it going. So it became a, a more uh, regular thing to even where we would uh, be planning ahead to the weekends where we would uh, have uh, mayonnaise jars full of uh, alcohol stored up as we would lift a little bit out of uh, the booze bottles all week long and be ready for the weekend. And, and then um, by the time I was 14 years old, I got a job in what we affectionately call in Michigan, we call them party stores, which everybody laughs about. But to the rest of your listeners around the world and the country, uh, it's a convenience store that oh. sells uh, beer and liquor. <laughs> and so I found a place where I could drink while I was working at 14 years old um, and throw the empties into the 
the recycle bin uh, when I was done with them uh, right there and I could put things out the back door so I could pick it up when I left work or or have friends pick it up uh, on their bikes because none of us were old enough to drive. And I really, um, I was stealing alcohol, obviously, and uh, drinking alcohol regularly. And that's the first time that I really had a, a biological reaction to it where, you know, I, I, I recognized when I didn't drink uh, that there were consequences, you know, because I had uh, risen to drinking at uh, a pretty high level. And, um, you know, then I, then I uh, left home at 17. I graduated high school at 17. And from that day forward, really with that freedom, I was, I was off to the races, uh, um, uh, you know, all the way uh, through until I um, eventually entered recovery. Mm-hmm. But you, you had ambitions at that time, because you ended up in politics. And so alcohol didn't dull that. It doesn't sound like. no, no, it, it, it didn't. I, um, what I tell people is, I, I, I had kind of a two-track life, you know, that was going. There was what I uh, let other people see, and then there, there was the truth of what was going on inside of me and how I lived my life behind closed doors. And um, the fact that I could do both of those tracks of my life uh, at the same time, um, I think a lot of people would think that 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 was a credit to me or, or, or it was a special talent or ability. And, and maybe it was, but it, it didn't do me any good because it, what it did was it kept me in addiction for an extended period of time, you know, upwards of 29 years from the time I was 10 or 11 until the time I was 39 years old, because I could succeed in the things that a lot of people value in the world, like, you know, getting good grades in high school and playing a couple sports, um, going to college. I graduated college in three years when I was 20 years old. But um, I can tell you that every single night I drank myself to sleep, you know, Uh to the point where I'd probably have a hard time walking to the bed. Uh, um, And um, I'd start drinking during the day. But I could take a bunch of credit hours at the same time, because the school didn't come hard to me. And and, um, so there was never a price to pay for uh, my addiction. But even at that age, um, I knew that it was a problem and I didn't like it. it. It became a burden and I wanted desperately to be able to drink like normal people. And I knew that before I ever turned 21, the legal drinking age in Michigan, um, that this was a huge uh, problem. And wow. I even thought before I got that driver's license that, that said I was okay to buy alcohol, which obviously I'd been heavily drinking for several years. Right. I said, this is going to be a problem. You know, and I knew it would be a problem. And as I went into my 20s, um, it was always a daily battle of, of, of how I managed it until I was done with the day. And, and then I could drink to what, what my desire was to drink until I fell asleep to reset, to live it over the next day. And um, so I wrestled with it um, all the way through starting businesses, starting a family, uh, getting involved in politics, having a lot of success in business um, keeping a marriage and, and, um, uh, having a a great deal of success in my political life, which, um, I guess gave everybody else this, uh, uh, um, idea that I, I must be able to handle it, but inside it was, it was hollowing me out. It was uh, destroying me that, that whole time. Right. Not to mention the physical toll it takes. The spiritual, mental and physical. 
it's amazing the the price that we pay and for how long uh, we'll pay it. And I always thought it was one of those things where I'd fantasize about it. And I'd say, when if I just get to here, I'll be able to catch my breath and, and, and focus on uh, learning how to not drink alcohol. If I could just get this business to work, if I could just get more money, if I could just, and, and I had these different things. And um, um, when I finally got sober, you know, I'd done a lot of, things that were very uh, noteworthy, you know, like I, in my political career, um, I was very visible, even when I was a city councilman in, in uh, the state of Michigan, and I served there for two years, and then uh, was elected to the legislature, and I was 32 years old, uh, unanimously, I, nobody competed with me, Republican or Democrat, which is, is, is unique, that doesn't really happen very often, right. um, and uh, um, so I won at the filing deadline, and uh, then I was elected Speaker of the House when I was 34. I took, or 33. I took office when I was 34, and um, at a very young age, the youngest in Michigan's history and the youngest Republican leader in the country. Yeah, I read that. And then this yeah. whole new pressure came in, and and I still thought, you know what? I'll, I'll get around to this. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll figure it out. I was still trying to do this, and um, it, it it was. Uh, you know, for your listeners, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't what people think it, you know, it is, you know, it wasn't a bed of roses. It was a huge uh, burden uh, by then just to get through a day. Right. What, let me see if I can ask this right, but what was it for you that you felt like alcohol provided for you that you couldn't provide for yourself? Is that a fair question? Oh, it's absolutely fair question. And I speak about this a lot. And I I wrote a uh, book, uh, uh, my memoir, you know, about this. And uh, I titled the memoir highly functional. Right. And a lot of people, when they see that, they say, right, because you were highly functional because you accomplished all these things while you were in addiction. Right. And I say, actually, I'm I'm, I'm making fun of the words highly functional. Yeah. You know, uh, um, you'd have to read the book to get the joke. And, and then my friends in recovery, they laugh because they know that there really isn't such a thing as, you know, if you're addicted to a drug or alcohol of, of truly being uh, uh, functional in the way that you'd want to be. Right. Um, you're not really and, functional. And, uh, not really. Yeah, not really. And, and uh, for me, uh, the, the revelation that when, when the quarter dropped into the machine and, and, and it made sense to me uh, um, about recovery was at a kid's class that the Betty Ford um, Center had put on at the facility that I was in called the Brighton Center for Recovery in Michigan. Uh, they, they have a partnership with like Hazelden and, and Betty Ford. And they were teaching my kids um, an age-appropriate class for 6 to 12-year-olds about addiction. And they were using a metaphor of rocks in a bag. And, and uh, the kids had burlap sacks, and they picked one kid out, and then they started um, uh, taking these rocks that said things like fear and guilt and shame and anger and jealousy and, and things like that. And they would ask the kids, give me a fear. And they would say, I'm afraid of tornadoes. Okay, put a rock in the bag that says fear. Okay, I'm afraid of spiders. Put that fear rock in the bag. Okay, now we're going to talk about anger. What makes you angry? And the kids would say what makes them angry. And they put the rocks in the in this kid's bag. And, and they asked him what was wrong. And he said he couldn't carry the bag anymore. And then the, the, the teacher stood up and he said, this is why your parents are here. They have all these rocks in their bag 
and drinking wasn't their problem. It was their solution. Right. Their problems are what's in the bag. Right. You know, fear, guilt, shame, pride, anger, jealousy. Uh, um, and uh, they've never been able to get the rocks out of the bag. They don't know how to do that in a healthy way. So what they did was they started drinking or taking drugs so the bag didn't bother them. Right. That they were carrying around these problems. Still had the bag. And, um yeah, they still had the bag, but it, it, and it made them forget about the problems for a little while. But then what happened was their solution didn't work because then the solution, they needed more and more of it to forget about the bag of rocks. And then actually their solution turned on them because it started putting rocks in the bag faster. Right. And, and uh, so it became this, this cycle where, where it was a bad thing. And so they're here so they can get the rocks out of their bag. And then they won't need the solution of drugs or alcohol ever again. And I about fell out of my little six-year-old chair <laughs> that I'm sitting in in the ring with the other parents. Wow. And I said, how come nobody explained that to me when yep. I was in like third grade? Yeah. Like, I get that now. Yeah. I understand it. And so when you ask me, you say, what was alcohol doing in my life? I think that's exactly what it was doing in my life. I, even at that age, and who knows, maybe I had a crush on a girl Maybe my, my classes were stressing me out. Maybe it was my brothers. I don't know what it was, but, but my, the alcohol said, oh, my mind can be free of my worries and my problems of, of a 10 or 11-year-old. And I was like, I like that better right? than actually having to sort these problems out. And so as the years went on and the worries grew, um, that was my solution that I always went back to. And so every time I would get sober for a week or two or any other effort that I put into it. Um, eventually something would happen. I'd break up with a girl. I'd, you know, owe some taxes, whatever thing would happen. And, and, and even if it was good, I, I, I get a huge bonus check. Well, my solution for everything was, well, you know, I'll just drink tonight. And then, and as we all learn with any drug or alcohol, it's not the 30th beer, you know, or, or, or uh, uh, the, the 20th uh, Vicodin pill. It's the, first one that's right that, that gets us back on that road and and um i'd always go back to my um solution so for me that is the mechanics for what i think addiction was for me mm-hmm. and i also think that those, those are the mechanics of my recovery yeah which is uh, hey i've got the same problems as other people um maybe they're having affairs maybe they're overweight maybe they're lying or cheating or stealing or whatever I, mine was alcohol, but I, I'm not, I'm not, um, an anomaly as a person. I'm not a bad person. Right. I've just got to invest in trying to figure out how to get these problems out of me. And then I won't have to drink anymore. And, and that really, to me was why I'm still sober today. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And the fact that you have been sober, sober as long as you have and, you know, maintain it. I mean, well done you. I know it's not easy. What was Yeah, what but, would, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not as hard as I ever thought it would be because um, I like this a lot better. There, you know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, <laughs> something I don't wanna, it's something I don't want to give up. Yeah, I know. I understand. What was it, what was the final straw, if you will, that broke the camel's back that, finally got you to the point where you said, okay, I, I'm not waiting for anything else. I have to handle it now. I have to handle it. I have to stop. What was, what was that point for you? Well, now your listeners are going to get a good story. Oh, this good. Is a good con- <laughs> it's been good a so good far. A good country song. 
Yeah, this could be a good country song. It could be actually be a Jerry Springer episode oh. uh, if anybody used to watch those old shows. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I got arrested the first time in February 2010. I was um, uh, not even driving my car to let you know how pathetic a state I was in. And uh, um, the police were watching me because I um, had, had, you know, I was walking around my car and, and um I, they, they pulled over and they said, we think, you know, you've been driving. It was snowing out. They could see the tracks of me pulling in and the rest of it. And I had a flat tire and, and, um, and, and it looks like you've been drinking and everything. And I, you know, was saying, well, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, they said, well, we, we want you to do a sobriety test. And I, 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 uh, I was so cold and I was so out of sorts. Um, I said, I, you know, I, I don't even want to fight it. I'll, I'll take your breathalyzer. And I did. And I blew a point. 289 uh, uh, breathalyzer um, at five o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, you know, they, they said, we're going to bring you in. Um, you weren't driving your car, but we think you were driving it before. So we got to talk to the lawyers and the police chief and sort it out. And they did. And um, uh, when I went to leave there in the morning, um, they, they held me overnight Um I said, uh, I need to get a copy of the, uh, police report and, you know, I need to fill out the forms for that. And they said, yeah, it's going to take us a couple of days to get the police report done because for people like you, we want to make sure we get it done. Right. And I thought, Oh boy, mm. you know, somebody Googled me, you know, like, here we go. Cause I didn't, you know, I didn't say, you know, you've got a, a, a public figure on the stringer. I didn't think anybody knew who I was at that level, but uh, sure enough, I get a call from the media a couple of days later and it made the news wires and it wasn't that interesting of a story to people because it was, um, uh, uh, it was a drunk driving, you know, right. it was uh, uh, an egregious drunk driving at 0.289, but I did, it wasn't an accident and I wasn't even driving around the, the road. So it, it was in 275 newspapers around the country because I was a former speaker of the house and when Mitt Romney decided he was going to run for president, I was one of the people that helped him get that organized. And I, um, and introduced him the day he announced he was going to run for president mm -hmm. for the 2008 campaign. And, uh, so, uh, I thought the punishment would, would teach me a lesson, uh, that that's all I needed was some good old fashioned humiliation and accountability. And I'd never do it again. And four months goes by, my wife goes out of town. I'm stressed out because my business is kind of failing. And, um, I drink again and a neighbor of mine chose to, I didn't know the reasons at the time. And I, I don't need to bore your listeners with them, but the simple version of it would be, he wanted to be on TV or something. And he knew that I was on probation. So he called the police and, um, said that I had been drinking and, uh, that I had a gun in my house, which was true, uh, both of those things. But what he didn't know and what, the media probably didn't know in fairness to them was that the local city didn't like my politics much and that we were kind of opponents. Mm. And so when they got the call, they, they loved it. And, and they said, this is all we need. And they came into my house and arrested me on a Saturday night for, um, uh, uh being at home intoxicated with young children and, uh, uh, guns or one gun. And, um, and, uh, that it took them several minutes before they could safely remove me from the pro property is what they said to the media. Hmm. So in other words, they, 
portrayed me like I was a barricaded gunman. Right. So I'm trying to give your readers, you know, how low this low point is. Yeah. Um, and the truth wouldn't come out for six months. Uh, but now I'm in 575 newspapers. I've got helicopters flying over my house. I've got all the news stations camped out front and um, getting the full Charlie Sheen Lindsay Lohan treatment. You know, CNN, uh, uh, Fox News, everybody picked it up. And it was crazy. My wife had to move out of the house. She told me she was leaving me. Um, I uh, was being uh, indicted, um, uh, arraigned uh, for the uh, one arrest. I had a 93-day suspended sentence in the previous probation uh, in a different court. And uh, my clients all called me and fired me. And um, and uh, I went to rehab for the third time. And uh, because of my arraignment and all of the other things, I was actually sober. And so that disqualified me from insurance coverage. And uh, so they were going to kick me out of rehab because my insurance denied me. And I was on every radio station, every newspaper in the country. And um, I couldn't go home because my wife wasn't there but didn't want me. I wasn't welcome there anymore. And I was facing 93 days in in, uh, jail. And my brother called me and told me to uh, quit hiding in rehab like uh, the Hollywood trick. And uh, that I just needed to grow up and figure it out, uh, um, you know, by the weekend. <laughs> it was like a Tuesday. <laughs> and that, that was it. So I, I was like, I just, that was it. And, and, and really, honestly, I still was groping in my head in rehab, trying to figure out how to fix it, you know, mm-hmm. because that's what I was doing my whole life. And, and what came into my head, because I was a speaker of the house and I had to run everybody's campaigns, was I was a spin doctor. I would come up with how to explain everything. And I thought, the newspapers are portraying me like I'm a barricaded gunman. Right. So in other words, I'm a crazy person. Right. And if I went to them and said the truth, which was I didn't even have, I wasn't even on the same floor of my house as the gun. People, if, if someone who's being accused of being crazy says they're not crazy in the media, what does it make them sound like? Crazy. They're crazier, right? Yeah, you know, like, yeah. oh my gosh, the poor thing doesn't even know right. that he's crazy. And so that is actually what helped me. And a lot of people say, aren't you so upset with the fact that these lies were told about you in the media? And I said, you know, actually, I don't know. If I could have explained my way out of it, I probably would have explained my way out of it. Right. For all I know, I'd have been drinking a month later. Right. So, so in a way, the, the fact that I couldn't defend myself um, helped me. Right. So it was a very low bottom. Wow. And then you did, you did rehab. You did the 12 step program, right? I did. Yeah. The 12 steps, uh, were, you know, amazing for me. And, um, I, uh, because that's what I needed to do. I needed to get the rocks out of my bag. And, and for, for me, um, I tried it before, you know, for people that say, well, I've gone to those meetings, they suck. People are this, people are that, you know? Yeah. I've been to all those meetings too. Yep. Um, but I was, I was, I was cooked, you know, there wasn't anything for me. I didn't have any money. Um, uh, everything was gone. And, um, so I had to keep going, you know, to different meetings and somebody gave me a tip and said, um, you know, just find somebody, don't overthink it. Just find somebody that has what you want and ask them how they did it. Right. And, and so that's what I did. I looked for who was happy and free and, and that had come from a, a low bottom 
And I went up to him, and his name's Bruce, and he and I said, "Will you help me?" And, and uh, he said, "You know, I'd be happy to tell me about your, you know, where you are." And I told him a little bit about it, and he says, "Oh yeah, I'm reading about you in the newspaper." <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes, I, "I didn't mean to insult you." I said, "No, it's fine." So I said, "You know how difficult things are. Will you help me? I, I want, I want to get to the other side of this." And I just. I started following their directions, and I found for me, the steps really were good at getting those rocks out of the bag. That's you know, that, that, that um, if I put myself, put my shoulder into it and was honest and said everything I did, that it, it was amazingly freeing. And even to this day, almost eight years later, I can go to bed at night, and I don't think about the past. I don't think about the future. I, I can go to bed. I, I honestly... Uh, it, it got rid of that whirlwind in my in my head, and um, so they were very helpful to me. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned to me before we started recording that you had just spoken to your mentor. Was that Bruce? Yeah, Bruce. Okay, you said you had you said you had another yeah. story there that you wanted to share. Yeah, well, I was telling him, you know, um, it, you know, and, and this is a twelve step story, and I know you know not all of your listeners will have gone through the twelve steps, but some have. Uh, there's this uh, uh, ninth step promise, and it, it says no matter how far down you've gone in your life, I'm paraphrasing now, um, you'll see how your experience can benefit others. And I thought that is great for other people. You know what I mean? Like uh-huh. that sounds really cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? That that yeah. can help other people. But I'm sitting in here in the middle of my mess when I'm learning about the 12 steps and they're reading that promise and everything. And I'm thinking, there's no way that this pile of steaming poop you know, <laughs> that, that my life has become, that I am laid nuclear waste to my name, anybody who's ever known me, you know, everything could be could be a benefit to anybody. Like, it's a good, it's a, it's a feel-good statement. Right. And, um, you know, here I am now, almost eight years later, and, and I was telling them, I just, literally, as I'm talking to you, I'm driving back to my hotel from the white house where I was in the West wing talking to the vice president at length about, um, addiction and criminal justice reform and using my experience, that horrific low bottom that I just described where people in power now are recognizing that, Hey, um, what we're doing isn't working. Could you tell us about your experience of what worked so we can actually get smarter in the government and, and, um, yeah, that, so that, that's a story I'd love to share with you. And I was sharing with him is to say, who would have thought from that day, you know, those several years ago, uh, um, that, that that story could be used to help other people today. And maybe it can. And what a privilege it is, how grateful I am. I'm not proud of that anymore. You know, like they say, wow, I'm proud of myself or anything because I learned that it isn't me at all. Right. You know, but but I'm just really grateful that I'm alive today and that I'm sober. Yep. Um, so I can I can tell people like him, this would be Vice President Pence, hey, there, people can get out, out of this. They don't have to be treated as lepers the rest right. of their life. Right. Uh, um, it, it, and I can use my experience and and so other people can maybe find sobriety today. Yep. And that, and you know, it's great that you say that, Craig, because that's exactly what we put out there all the time is, you know, there is hope. And, you know, if, if our listeners are addicts themselves, they can get help, they can get better. And also, any of our listeners that are friends and family of addicts, you need to get them help. 
you know, don't wait, you know, get them, get them into treatment, into whatever treatment is going to work for them. And I think your story is incredibly inspirational. I mean, incredibly inspirational. If I can just ask you one more thing, because um, you were down here in Florida recently, and I didn't get to hear you speak. And I'm sorry, I didn't get to hear you speak. But I think one of the things that you were addressing was the idea of medically assisted treatment. Yes. And your viewpoint on that? Yeah, I love to talk about that. And um, I, I think uh, um, I have very strong opinions on this. I lost my younger brother um, uh, back on Benghazi Day, uh, September 12th, 2012, September 11th, going into 2000 or September 12th, uh, from an overdose um, to a multitude of, of prescriptions he was put on um, by the Veterans Administration. And I know the stakes that are involved, and I know how hard and confusing it is when people get sober because of the suite of things that were offered to me too. But I really, really think that we do a disservice when we tell people that the medication cures things, because I don't think that that's even what the medical medication providers, at least in one case of a responsible one that makes Vivitrol says it doesn't cure anything. Right. It, it, it is a tool to help people as they cope with and get to a place of recovery. And, and so, um, I, I really think that people need to, to, uh, I, I try to explain the mechanics of this too. And they say, what are you talking about? Are you saying that that medicine is evil or bad or anything? No, I, I actually needed medicine. You know, I would do it again today with everything I know to go from the state of intoxication and addiction that I was on to where I was off of it. Because I, it, you don't want to have a stroke. You don't want to have a heart attack. You don't, you know, you, you need to uh, uh, help your using chemicals, you know, for extended periods of times and high volumes. You, you need to ensure that your body comes off of those chemicals in a, respond, in, in a responsible way. Right. But I wouldn't wish on anybody the notion that, as I said, you're a leper, that, that um, you, you can't live without replacing the drugs that you were using with other drugs. Right. Because what that does, you know, when I fight for uh, criminal justice, too, I say that's the problem with our criminal justice system is we take somebody that's full of problems and we put them in a cage for a year or eight years and we don't do anything. They lay in bed for 23 hours a day and their problems are still with them and you come out of the cage and guess what? You brought your problems with you and you still have your old solutions you go back to. And more problems and now. You, and more problems, yeah. right? So if you if you say, well, I'm, I'm not going to drink alcohol. I'm going to take these uh, brain-altering drugs that chill me out. What, what you're really saying to yourself is, I'm going to carry that bag of rocks around. Yep. You know, but maybe this way of carrying the, the, the bag of rocks around is safer. And, and I just don't, I think that sells people short. I think that uh, as human beings, I think our lives are worth more than that. And and I really want our, our recovery community to take this seriously, yep. you know, and, and to say we don't have to say that this is immoral practice or that it's it's outrageous or that it that it that it is, is um, you know, even uh, uh, damaging to people in, in, in how it can be used properly. But but I think that by and large, they're they're, they're selling the medically assisted treatment in an immoral <laughs> and dangerous and, and physically and mentally harmful way yep. by, by giving people the idea that you don't have to do anything. You can stay that with full of 
anger and fear and pride and all these other problems carry that bag yeah we'll help you do it yeah yeah Yeah, and it's harmful i you know i completely agree with you and um, my co-host is, uh, you know, he works for Narconon down here. And of course, Narconon is a completely drug-free rehab program with the exception right. of someone who has been addicted to alcohol because when someone has been addicted to alcohol and comes off of that, it it's life-threatening. And so, you know, oftentimes they will send someone in that position to a hospital to be administered whatever medication will help the body adjust so the body doesn't go into seizures and such. But for the most part, you know, Narconon definitely is drug free and, you know, has the same idea. There's no logic in substituting one drug for another drug. And you put it much more eloquently than that, but we are on the same page. Yeah. I just don't want to see people being sold short. Uh, um, I know that we try to help people, but, um, you know, uh, it, it enables, uh, people to, uh, live in pain and in fear. And, in, you know, and I, and I think people have good intentions as they advocate for these things, but right. I think it's, uh, wildly irresponsible for our leaders. Yeah. <laughs> this is why, why I, I love the privilege. I get to talk to leaders. I say, you know, the problem is you're talking to doctors and drug companies yeah. and, and, and that's how they make their and, money. And sheriffs. Yeah, you need to talk to the people that have actually overcome this and said, how'd you do that? And, right. and, and talk to people. And maybe someone's still struggling three or four months in, and, and they are on you know two or three different replacement drugs. Talk to somebody who's a year or two, three, you know, five years into their recovery and ask them what they're taking to cope. I think it'd be really hard-pressed to find they're taking anything. Right. You know, uh, uh, because they've, they've uh, learned that they want to be free of that. We have a yearning as human beings to be free. And to the extent that we can be people, I, I think that they should be given that opportunity. I agree. I, I completely agree. And I can't tell you how thankful I am that you have the ear of our leaders to at least keep dinging that message in. I think that's super important. And you have done such you just come an amazing way to be able to talk to people at the level that you can talk to and get some of these viewpoints across and some of these points made. So I really, I thank you for that. Well, like I said, it is a privilege that I'm very humbled and grateful for. And, um, you know, I just try to keep on (laughs) walking forward and sharing, you know, uh, um, I I tell people that, that, that the, uh, the stuff I can share uh, with people is is free for me to share, but it costs me everything to learn. <laughs> right. So well, it's a very good point. You know, you know it's, it, it's a very it good cost point. Me money. You know, I didn't have to pay to learn these lessons. Like, like I signed up for a course that was expensive, but it literally cost me everything in this world. Yes. And so um, maybe that was um, a good price to pay because it. It's. I believe it's in my core. Well, there you go. Well, Craig, thank you so much for talking to us today. I know you're on the road, and I appreciate you pulling over to the side of the road and talking to us. And I just want to wish you all the success with everything you're doing going forward. Well, thank you, and thank you to all of your listeners. And uh, I intend to be one of the listeners uh, going forward and uh, love to share in the community. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Craig. Bye. Bye.
So what did you think, Jason? I know you couldn't be here when I, I interviewed Craig, but what did you think? I think I thought it was a great interview. I think he uh, is definitely, definitely a shining example of that whole myth of the functioning addict. Right. You know, I always I always thought the word functioning addict was some sort of like oxymoron because if you're an addict, you're not really functioning. And although he, you know, was successful in work and in his career, he was not successful and not functional in the way of his personal life. And so I think you have to look at when you call a person a functioning addict, it's like, well, what part of them is functioning? You also have to look at the part that's not. And um I think it's very interesting that he is a 12-step guy, but he's not for medication-assisted treatment, like right. methadone, suboxone, replacing right. drugs with drugs. Usually, when it comes to 12-step programs, the gold standard, quote-unquote, is you know you do 12 steps, you get on suboxone or methadone or Vivitrol, and you go that route. And I think it's interesting that he has part of our viewpoint and part of a 12 step viewpoint. But the, the thing is, I'm all about whatever gets you sober. Right. As long as it doesn't put you on more drugs, it doesn't cause you any kind of physical or long-term, you know, personal harm, then what you got to do, you got to do, get clean. Ex um, I'm just glad he did it without medications. I'm glad he did it, you know, holistically. And I'm glad he got to the root of his problem. Exactly. And and he did say that that he did take medications, but we have also talked about, and this is what I brought up in the interview, that um, alcohol addiction is a bit different in that the withdrawal yes. from alcohol addiction can cause serious physical effects because there are, yeah. you know, seizures that can happen. And so sometimes I believe you've said in the past that even, you know, people who come into Narcanon, you have to send them to have some medically assisted withdrawal because of the, of the, yeah, a seizure. Yeah, yeah, because of the seizure, because, because alcohol in some ways is worse than other drugs in terms of, of the withdrawal. But, but, he, but Craig also made it very clear that, you know, the idea of really just substituting one drug for another is, is, he is not in agreement with that. And, um, fortunately, yeah. because of, you know, uh, what his life was like before prior to him being an addict, he has communication lines and contacts that have put him at such a level that he can express that concern um, about medically assisted treatment. He can express that on higher levels than you, than you or I might be able to, assuming that the vice right, president is not listening to our podcast. <laughs> right. I was just going to say, um, you know, I think it's great that he was just in the West Wing of the White House with uh, the vice president talking about this because it's those types of um, it's those types of people we need to get an ear to to really start making a difference because I mean you can't go much higher up than, the, than him until you're at the president of the United States and getting in his ear and talking about things from our viewpoint from Craig's viewpoint. I think it's a great idea because you know. Who else to make better decisions for our country than our leaders? I mean, hopefully they'll make the right decisions for us. Exactly. Exactly. Because we could change the gold standard, quote unquote, you know, for treatment. Yep. We could change that. It's just a matter of changing our mindset and shifting the paradigm on how we deal with addiction. That's exactly right. That's exactly correct. And of course, his focus is on on prison reform, but you have the same types of problems in prison as you do with the addicts that um, come, or the students who come into Narcanon. So it oh, was absolutely. And, you know, I can attest for the fact 
that the drug rehabilitation systems within prisons is lacking at best. You know, I was a therapist in the prison uh, for a while and uh, here in Florida, actually. And I worked in what was called their residential drug and alcohol abuse program. And you have to do this specific program a specific way. You can't really change anything or ad lib anything. You have to read from these modules. And that's the state approved method of handling prisoners with addiction. And I had such a fundamental problem with the program that I actually left the job because I was like, this isn't workable. I can't. I can't spread this um, modality and use this to get these guys clean because this isn't workable. Right. Plus, I mean, it's not I, workable. I mean, isn't the standard treatment in prisons? Isn't it medically assisted treatment? Isn't it there more Sometimes than anywhere else? Sometimes it is. Sometimes okay. they get medicine, medically medicine assisted treatment, but also they mostly get inundated with this your disease, there's something fundamentally and spiritually and organically wrong with you. Uh, You've got to take the psychiatric medication that, you know, the psychiatrist is determined is necessary for you. Right. Um, we have to, you know, talk about life skills and different things like that in a really unworkable way. And it's just like, I saw the program is so lacking. It just bothered me on a really deep level because if you look at people who are locked up in prison, I mean, these are the people that I assume need our help the most. Yeah. I mean, their lives have gotten so bad that it's gotten to the point where like society has put justice in on them. Right. 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 Locked them away and said, okay, you're not fit to be with us because you committed X, Y, and Z offenses. So you need to go basically live in the cage for a while. Um, And then the fact that most of these guys in there were there because of substance abuse related issues. Right. Like most of them committed their crimes because of drugs or being on drugs or because they were selling drugs or under the influence of drugs. Right. If we actually helped these guys and got them clean with a workable way of doing it, a workable modality, we might see a lower percentage of recidivism once they leave. Exactly. There might be a higher chance that they're not going to come back. But there's some sort of disconnect there. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't get why we don't bring a workable technology into the prison systems because at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to see people locked up. These people's families don't want to see their loved ones locked up. And most of these guys who are locked up don't want to be locked up. And so I just don't see why we don't do that. Now that brings me (laughs) to another problem I have with this whole thing is I worked for the private sector of prison, meaning it was a privately owned and public, a privately owned entity that was actually profiting off people incarcerated. So it was like a whole mess. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, a, it was yeah. a whole kind yeah. of mess of a situation. I don't want to get into that. It's too much of a political debate at that point. Yeah. But I think that we need to really bring more of a workable technology into the prison system. That way we can start to see a lowering of the recidivism rate, lowering of the crime rate, and a lowering of the amount of people that are going to leave prison, go home, and go back on drugs. I think so, too. And I think that that is the whole thrust of the organization that Craig works for and um, and I think, I think it's good that he is in the position that he's in and able to speak to our leaders about some of the issues. So um, right. I hope our listeners enjoy today's podcast and today's interview. Mm-hmm. And you and I are going to come back and do this again. 
We are every what, week. What a novel no thing. Fail. We'll be back. Yeah, what a novel thing. <laughs> All right. Okay, Jason, take care. You too. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 